Uh, we're going to continue our series that began last Sunday in the Sermon on the Mount. It's a beautiful passage. It is the largest narrative, the largest accumulation of words of any one sermon of Jesus in one text. And we're going to take a look at that. It's a beautiful text. We started this study last week when we looked at the end, the ending of the message, the ending of the sermon, to see the invitation of Jesus and to lay what we call four cornerstones that we might then, as we set them, be able then to build a structure that would be solid as we begin to look at this passage of Scripture and see the content and the context in which Jesus wants to speak into our lives. We saw the four cornerstones. Number one was that we were to investigate and then discern truth from untruth. It's important that we understand that we go to the right source, to the right authority, that we know who is true and who is untrue, what is true and what is untrue, and that we build our lives on truth. If we lose for whatever reason, that ability to discern truth from untruth, we're going to build on the wrong foundation and can be in serious trouble. We then looked last week at the fact that the cornerstone is to involve more than lip service. As we see this Sermon on the Mount, we're going to learn that, that following Christ, being a disciple of Jesus, is more than just simply something we say. It is how we live. It impacts our lives. It makes a difference in the lifestyle choices that we make. Thirdly, we saw that the fourth, third cornerstone was to include a foundational change in which Jesus becomes our rock. He is the person. He is the sole one that we look to and we build upon as the solid rock that we anchor our lives on and we build our lives from that point. And then we saw the fourth cornerstone was that in that we invite Christ then to be the sole authority of our lives. He becomes a CEO, the chief operating guy who calls all of the shots. We follow him. We emulate our lives after him. He gets to choose what we say, what we think, what we see, what we hear, what we do, and what we become. Those are the four cornerstones. We're going to now, after having laid those four cornerstones, we're going to build a platform or build a base or a foundation by which to build upon. And that foundation is described for us in what we know as the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are, I think, critical as Jesus begins his opening remarks in this beautiful Sermon on the Mount by helping us understand that there are four studies and, uh, that relate to man and three, uh, I'm sorry, five that relate to man and three that are going to relate to God. They're going to sum up eight, and out of those eight, we're going to learn that these studies help reduce the stress in our lives. Anybody here need more stress in their life? Anybody? Nobody. That's what I thought. So we're going to help look at this passage as Jesus helps us learn how to take the stress out of the Christian life. And I'm convinced that there are many today who live a stressful Christian life. So I want to invite you to stand with me. We're going to read all of the Beatitudes in, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. And then we're going to look at these one by one in the next eight Sundays as we discover how to take the stress out of life. Turn to your neighbor and say, you look stressed out today. Hopefully by the time we're done, you'll be less stressed. Are you ready? Let's look a look at Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Father, I pray that as we stand in honor of your word, that you would use this time as we dive into your word to take a little bit of the stress out of the lives that we seek to live for you. This subject today is a critical study. For I am convinced that there are many of us in this room, including myself, who struggle with our acceptability to you. We wonder if we are living a life that is acceptable in your sight. We wonder if the lives that we live would actually bring a smile to your face. And there's a lot of pressure from within and from outside, from others, that often try to rob us of the approval that you've already given to us because of our position in righteousness in Christ. But we are aware that even though we have a position of righteousness, there's still a practice of righteousness. And it's that practice in which sometimes robs us of the joy that comes and the happiness that comes that knows that our life is living up to your approval. So God, I pray that you would instill within us this wonderful opportunity to see how you approve of us and how our righteousness, which is never sufficient, can lean upon the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus. And that even though we can't live perfect lives, we still stand approved before you. That if having confessed our sin, that you are faithful and just and that you will forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So Lord, use this time to release us from this stress. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, please be seated. Well, life during this message to those Jesus is addressing is just and was just as stressful as our lives today. And most of the followers of Christ who not only heard his message but responded to his message and flocked to him in droves were predominantly from the poor, societal, economic, downward trend of the economy. Did you know that? There were a handful of disciples who faithfully followed Christ, who did have some financial, substantial means. They were, by all standards of society, very, very wealthy. But for the most part, his disciples and those who flocked to him in droves, in multitudes, were primarily from uh, the uh, lower socioeconomic level of their society. They were poor. I mean, not just poor, but they were dirt poor, literally. For many of them came from a farming background, and it was hard to make a living then, especially under the, the auspice of this Roman-controlled government that, that kept the people of Israel under this economic pressure and the taxes and all of the requirements that the government placed upon them. It was hard to make a living. It was hard to succeed, and it was hard then to live. Placed on top of that, you place the burden of the religious sex of that day that constantly bombarded the people over and over and over again with more rules, with more regulations, with more traditions upon traditions upon traditions. And most people who went to church, if they went to church at all on a regular basis, always walked away feeling as if their lives were inferior. What they had brought to God was unworthy. And there, as a result, they could not live up to the requirements and the standards of the law and the traditions that were set by the preachers of that day. And they were distraught. They were 
discouraged. They walked around defeated, despondent in their faith. And when Jesus came on the scene, they flocked to him by the multitudes. Why? Because he had a powerful message that turned that message upside down and made it into something that was not only palatable, but something that drew their attention and, and, and caused them to desire what he was seeking to offer. It was amazing. And Jesus is about to give this incredible, this beautiful Sermon on the Mount that is is going to liberate many who not only hear, but many who receive his message and seek to live out the content of what he's seeking to describe. Now, as we start, I want us to understand this one word. It is critical, the word blessed, because it will be used time and time again in these 12 verses. Blessed. Who of us doesn't want to be blessed? I think every single one of us in this room say that, would say that we want to live a life in which we are reaping the blessings of God. Every one of us in here wants to live a blessed life. Anybody in here not want to be blessed by God? Anybody? None of us. We all want to live our lives as if we know that we're being blessed. And the question is, in this stress of living out the Christian life, how do we know when we are being blessed by God? In other words, how do we know when God is evaluating, analyzing, and looking in our lives, and our lives are lived in such a way that we cause God to smile? When's the last time you felt that God is looking down at your life and he's smiling at the effort that you're putting forth in living out the Christian life? You know, it, I was with the, the grandkids uh, in Frisco, Texas for about a day and a half. Uh, we left uh, mid-Thursday, uh, spent Thursday night, all day Friday, and came back uh, late Saturday morning back to Wichita. And, and I got to thinking about, as I'm mailing over this message in my mind, <laughs> I'm watching my grandkids. My, my oldest, Cannon, turned eight. Caden, I'm sorry, turned eight. Uh, Avery and Addie are five. They're twins. And, and Cannon is 20 months. And uh, about 80-plus people said that they liked the photograph of me and Cannon, uh, you know, on the, on the Facebook that I posted. I don't post a whole lot on Facebook anymore. Uh, it can be dangerous. It can bring all kinds of comments that sometimes are, are good and sometimes they're not. But, uh, so I just decided I would post that because it was, it was a beautiful picture of, of me holding Cannon, and it was, it was a good picture. And I'm cuddling him, and he's cuddling me, and it's a really beautiful time. But anybody knows that a 20-month-year-old uh, boy, a uh, 20-month boy, is not always like that. I mean, this kid is all boy, you know? I mean, he's always sounds, and he's and he's like a monster everywhere he goes, and he's thick, and he's 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 short, but he's stout, and so he's he's throwing things, hitting things. I mean, he's he's all boy. But on that particular point and that time, we had this one moment that Patty captured on, on this snapshot that was really cool. And and I, being my grandpa, name is Doc. Uh, he he likes the fact that I was there because I get on the ground and I play and we have a great time. But I didn't notice while I was there. That children want to please their father. They do. As a matter of fact, the grandchildren want the grandfather to be pleased and the grandmother to be pleased. They do things and they look to make sure that you're watching and to make sure that you are approving, that you're smiling, that you like what they're doing, don't they? That's a very natural thing. And I got to thinking about what if a child grew up in a home where no matter what they did, 
They never received a smile from the parent or the grandparent affirming or approving their activity. Never. All they heard was criticism, put-downs, rough, tough words. You never live up. You never look right. You never act right. You're not doing right. And it's just constant pounding and beating and, and derogatory speech and all that. How long do you think a child could survive that way? until finally they just completely gave up with trying to please mom and dad at all. Wouldn't take very long, would it? You know, I'm convinced there are people like that. Uh, I don't know what their background has been as far as their knowledge of Christ, but they came to faith in Christ, and they were received by the Father through faith in Jesus, and then they sought to live the Christian life, but maybe they attended a church, or maybe they, they, they put pressure on themselves, and, and they knew that because of the rules and the regulations and all the traditions of the faith, their lives just never measured up, and as a result, all they heard was criticism, condemnation, conviction, down, down, boo, boo, bam, bam, and they just never felt good about their relationship with God. How long do you think it would, it would take for that kind of believer either to just quit altogether or maybe try to put on a mask and a facade as if they were living the life when they know deep down inside they are not? I'm convinced there are many of us that see our Heavenly Father as a God who's sitting up there on his throne in heaven with a big sledgehammer just bopping us on the head, waiting for us to mess up, always talking down, degrading, disappointing, devastating words in which he doesn't approve of our lives for any reason. No matter how much we serve, no matter how much we give, no matter how much we do, no matter how many services we attend and how many Bible studies we, we go to, how many verses we memorize, it, it's just never enough. And I think that's exactly what's happening here to the people that, that are flocking to Jesus by the multitudes. For they are being bombarded with this pressure of, of constantly trying to live up to the approval of a God who is never going to approve of their lifestyle, no matter how well they live it. And Jesus comes in on the scene and he delivers this incredibly powerful message that just causes people to be attracted to him like, like flies to one of those little things that you put up on, you know, in your backyard to keep the, the mosquitoes and the flies. I mean, they, they just can't not move toward him. And I think it's in this passage where we see in the opening lines of Jesus where he talks about the approval of God because I think that's what the word blessed means. Now, in many of our translations, we have the word happy, and I understand why the word happy is there. Happy are those, and happy are this, and happy are that. But I think the word happy in, in our English vocabulary has a tendency then to convey, the, in, in the context of our world today, this me thing. This me thing. It's kind of like Canon with my iPhone this, this last couple of days. Uh, he wants to see pictures of himself on the iPhone. I don't know how a 20-month-old kid can, can learn how to flip things on the iPhone the way he can and he stops at things that where he's in and and then there's there's little uh, movies that he can watch with him in it and and what pleased him the most was when I took that iPhone and I turned and reversed the camera so he can see himself and boy he's just looking at himself and, and it's all about me at 20 months old it's all about me and we as adults learn that life if we're not careful we think it's all about me and it's not and I think when we translate the word happy I mean blessed into happy we're making it all about me when in fact it's all about God because if we are living a life that brings God 
it brings a smile on God's face and he approves of our lives, then he's going to bless us. And then when he blesses us, then we'll be happy. Because a happy life is an approved life that becomes a blessed life. And so if we're living a life that brings a smile to God's face and a life in which he is approving of, his, his pronouncement is, I'm, 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 I approve of you. I, I, I love the way you're living. I, I like the what you're doing. I, I enjoy the way you're serving. And he, he brings, what we do brings delight to him. He blesses us. And when he blesses us, won't we then be happy? And so the key then is to turn it around and not make it about us, but make it all about God as we seek to be, uh, to be approved by him so that when he pronounces his approval upon our lives, not because we're perfect, but because at least we're putting forth the effort and he sees the effort, he's going to bless us and then in turn, our lives will be happy. You follow what I'm saying? We're going to review this time and time again in the next several studies. And so I want to take a look at the first blessed that he gives in this text. But before we do, I want us to quickly go over the first couple of verses, because you know me, I just can't pass over any verses in the Bible before we get the context of what we want to study today. So as we look at Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 1, I want us to see the moment for this message is right. The moment for this message is right. What is the right moment? This is the moment. Jesus is being followed by multitudes of people. He's been enlisting enlarging and educating people in regard to his kingdom. And now he comes with this message at this particular time in his ministry, and it's, it's, it's vital to what he's going to be doing from now on as he moves now from this point toward the mission and eventually the cross. Now, let's take a look at chapter 5, verse 1. Let's look at the moment, which is now right. Notice in the context here, if you'll take a look at the screen, there are five things I'm going to very quickly review. Notice, first of all, seeing the crowds. If you look at that word, seeing the crowds, I want you to notice the crowds. The moment is right because of the multitudes that are following Christ. I mean, word has gotten out not only throughout Galilee, but all throughout Judea and and all of the areas surrounding that Jesus is this incredible minister who has this wonderful authoritative message. And not only that, but he can do amazing miracles. And people are flocking to him by the multitudes, bringing all kinds of diseases and, and incurable things and a need for forgiveness and a need for restoration with God. And so they're coming and they're coming, these poor people from all over and all around. Jesus cannot get away even in the wilderness without people following him. I mean, he, he, he leaves the city to go out in the wilderness and the masses continue to follow him, which is what happens here in the Sermon on the Mount. He's not in the city, he's out in the wilderness and they follow him anyway. So we see that, that first of all, this, this mass that is following him is consistently just hounding Christ, following him, hungry for the message that he's giving. Notice the motivation of Jesus is also clear in that seeing the crowds. He saw the crowds. It's interesting that in Matthew, several times we see in his description of Christ that Jesus sees the crowds and he says he had compassion on them. He had compassion on them. The other religious elite, the other religious pastors and priests and prophets and the others that were in this particular era and time that were ministering to the people, they had very little, if any, compassion for the people whatsoever. And yet Jesus, who is the great shepherd, sees their hearts. He looks past 
all of the facade and he sees their heart, he understands their condition, he knows their pain and their heartache, and he has compassion for them. Isn't it great to know that Christ is a savior of compassion? That he sees our hearts, he understands our hurts, and he comes to minister to us at exactly the right moment with exactly the right message to liberate and to free us up from the heartache and from the pain that we're living. But shouldn't we as Christ followers be people of compassion? And yet too often those of us in the church are the least compassionate. We see not only his motivation is clear and the masses are constant, but we see the movement is calculated. Notice in the text it says, and he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, what is he doing? He's, he's drawing people unto himself. He's, he's intentionally, because Jesus never do, does anything that's not with intentionality. He draws them away from the, the, the urban and from the chaos, and he comes out to this hill, and he sits, and people then begin to leave their comforts and leave their world and leave all that, and they come to where he is. He's drawing them out like a mother hen would gather her chicks. And not only is it calculated, but notice his mission is consistent. For what purpose? Notice it said his disciples came to him. Jesus is always about, as we've been referring to for the last several months, he has been enlisting disciples to enlarge his kingdom as he educates them as to how kingdom kids live. That's what he's doing. And Jesus is continuing that mission. He's fulfilling what we call the Great Commission. That Great Commission is to do what? To make disciples. And Christ is modeling for us the Great Commission and he's making disciples. And Matthew says it very clearly. He draws them out. Why? To gather his disciples together so that he can educate, so that he can train them as to how disciples then are not only made, but how they live. And then notice at the end of verse 2, and he opened his mouth and he taught them. There's a method that's very common to Jesus, and that is he uses his voice to communicate. Because he knows that faith comes by, faith comes by hearing. And if we don't hear, we can't follow. And Jesus is well aware in John chapter 10 when he talks about, my sheep hear my voice. They recognize me. And the only way to follow Jesus is to know him, to know his voice, so that when he speaks and when he communicates, you follow. And so when he speaks, they hear. When they hear, their faith grows. They know exactly what it is that he's asking, what's required, the direction he's leading them. And so they then can follow as they follow that voice, and they follow in his footsteps. Interesting thing this weekend, I watched a dynamic take place between Matt, our oldest son, who is the father of Cannon. Uh, we were sitting in the living room uh, area, and uh, all of us, and all of a sudden there was a strange smell in the room. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. It's a very distinct smell. There's not another smell like it. And everybody in the room knows where that smell's coming from. And Ca Cannon calls that smell a boom. That's what he calls it, a boom. And so uh, that says, hey, Cannon, did you do a boom? That's it. And he's standing still. So dad gets up from the couch, goes to the master bedroom, which is just off the living area, and invites Cannon to come. That's it. Doesn't move. 
Several times, Dad invites Cannon into the bedroom because we all know what needs to happen in there. There needs to be a change of some sort. But Cannon's not moving. And it was so funny to watch that dynamic because as a grandparent, I'm fun. There are no do's, there are no don'ts, there's nothing. And if they ever want anything, and I don't think they should have it, I'll say, you need to go ask Dad. That's it. I'm the fun grandparent. We don't see him very often. I'll let the other grandparents who see him more often be the unfun ones. We'll be the fun ones. That way their memories of us are always good. And uh, so I commented about that. I said, you know, it's interesting to sit here on this couch as I talked to mom and and to Patty, we're sitting there, about this 20-month-old looking at dad, and you could see that there's something going on in his mind, okay? He's just standing there, and he's he's not moving. He's kind of looking up like that, and I imagine what's going on in his head. I mean, is he going to win this battle? He hears dad invite him into the bedroom. He knows that he needs to be changed. He knows what's going to happen in the room. And he knows that the ultimate outcome is going to be good. But because of the process to get there, he knows that the pain of taking off the diaper and putting a new one on is not pleasurable. And so he decides that it's better to sit in his own stool, stand there, rather than have his diaper changed. While he listens to dad to invite him into the room for a change. And I got to thinking about that this weekend. How often are we like that? God communicates and he speaks into our lives and he says, come. And we are his sheep. We're his children. We're his sons and his daughters. And we recognize and we hear his voice and and we just, and we sit there. In all of the discomfort, with all of the smell and the stench of our own humanity and our own carnality, and we don't make the move toward the Father's voice. And yet Jesus said that my sheep not only hear my voice, they recognize my voice, and they follow me. And so as disciples, what's our response to the voice of Jesus? To hear him, to recognize him, and then to respond obediently to what he's inviting us to do For if we don't, well, you know what happens. Dad went over and grabbed Cannon by the arm. He protested as much as a 20-month-old can, but he's he's nowhere near the strength of Dad. And he made him walk to the room, and he's he's plunging, and Dad's pulling. And in they go into the room, and you can hear the commotion going on and the conversation. You know that it's not pleasant because Dad is scolding his 20-month-old son for not obeying. And then you can hear the diaper being changed, and then you hear Cannon coming out. And dad tried to get him to come over and console him, and he's not coming. Holds a grudge. And I wonder how often are we like that with our Heavenly Father? Well, the moment was right. What's the message? The message of Christ is a radical message. Let's quickly look at the first blessed, the first beatitude. Notice he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So, if blessed means to have God's favor and God's approval, then how am I to be poor in the spirit in order to be, to be the kind of person that can bring pleasure to God? Well, here's the answer. Are you ready? Just be dirt poor, and God will be pleased and blessed. He'll bless your life. Anybody ready for that, that, that prescription? 
<laughs> that's, that's not what he's saying here. You see, you got to understand Jewish thought in the day and the time of Jesus. It was believed in the day of Jesus that if you were blessed, you were rich. And if you were not blessed, you were not rich. And so therefore, if you were poor, you were not blessed by God. You did not, and your life would not, and has not found favor with God. So therefore, all the rich people thought they would brought, you know, a smile on God's face, so he blessed them with wealth. And all the poor people did not receive God's approval, therefore not God's favor, therefore they were not blessed with wealth. Is that biblical? I ask you, is that biblical? One more time. Is that biblical? Come on, church. Some of us think that. I must have God's approval and God's favor because I'm financially blessed. That's wrong theology. While financial blessing can be a part of God's blessing and God's favor, it's not the sole measure of that blessing nor that favor. We need to be really, really careful because the poor here doesn't necessarily mean financial poverty, but it does mean, and they understood this in the context in which Jesus spoke it, that the poor had complete and total dependence upon God. The wealthy often are not dependent upon God. Why? Because I do it myself. I got money. I don't need God. I got a big portfolio. I got a big account. I got a, a, a great job. I drive a nice car. I live in a great house. I wear nice clothes. Therefore, I am a product of my own doing, and therefore, I can take care of myself and do it myself. And there's no dependence upon God. While the poor understand and recognize that without God, they can't make it week to week or month to month. And so they're completely and totally dependent upon God for everything. That's what he's saying here. The poor in spirit are those who are completely dependent upon God. They recognize and understand their complete and total bankruptcy. But the bankruptcy here is not financial. The bankruptcy is spiritual, for it's a spiritual poverty that he's talking about. It's a spiritual poverty in which our own righteousness never measures up to the righteousness of Christ. Let's take a look at the text. Notice the purpose of his message, to be blessed. The purpose of our message is, yes, to be blessed by God. Every one of us in here wants to find favor with God. We want God to, to find approval, and, and we want him to pronounce approval in our lives. So if that's the purpose, what's the prerequisite? The prerequisite to God's blessing is then for us to be poor in spirit, meaning to be humble. To be humble. And I could quote you if we had time, passage after passage after passage that talks about God blessing those who are humble, and those who are humble are going to find the favor and the blessing of God. So, in other words, without humility, can we not only not be saved, we will not have the blessing of a right relationship with the Father. And what he's talking about here, I think, is one inability to present themselves righteous before God, independently and apart from God. For there's a righteousness that is talked about. I want you to take your Bible, and we're going to quickly, it's not going to be on the screen, because I, I kind of like to have you guys, I like to hear Bible pages real quick, so turn real quick to 1 John 4.10, 1 John 4.10, 1 John 4.10. There, there's a position that we cannot fulfill nor meet on our own. 
The Bible is clear that we deserve to die as a penalty of our sin, and because of that penalty of our sin, we deserve then the wrath of God due to our sinful condition. Romans 3.23 says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says the wage of that sin is death. So because all of us are sinners, what we deserve is then to receive the wrath of God because of that sin. But for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting life. This is why he addresses, first of all, the first blessed in this entire message with a righteousness that people are not able to bring before God because they're under this bondage. They, they just don't feel righteous enough to come before God, and they don't think that they have God's favor because they're not living up to this righteous standard. But Jesus Jesus is saying, in me, I am your sufficiency. In me, I become your sufficiency. Because you do not have in and of yourself your own righteousness. Notice 1 John 4, 10 said, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be, what? The propitiation for our sin, the atoning sacrifice for our sin. He became the atoning sacrifice. Turn to 2 Corinthians 5.21. Now, as you're turning to 2 Corinthians 5.21, here's the deal. Most of us talk about the fact that Jesus lived the life that he lived in order to die on the cross for our sin against God. That's accurate, and that's true. But what most of us forget, and we have a tendency to overlook, is this one simple thing. That the reason why Jesus was able to, to die on the cross is because of his sinless life. Now, it is true that he had to live a sinless life in order to be a spotless sacrifice. That's true. But did you know, and we often forget, that Jesus had to live a sinless life in order to meet the demands of the Father? In other words, Jesus wanted God's approval. You with me? Jesus' life, he lived his life as and in such a way as to meet God's approval. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus became the righteousness of God. Now turn to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. I want to show you something. Now while you're turning there, I want to read Romans 5.19. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Philippians 3, 9, our goal is to do what? To be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. The moment we place our faith and trust in Christ, we receive a position of righteousness. Not by our own doing, but by his doing, by his complete work. My faith in him is not only a faith that he died on the cross for my sins, but my faith in him is that he lived his life in such a way that he met the approval of God. Was Jesus concerned about the approval of God? Absolutely. Notice Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to, the, to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you, and do you come to me? Dude, do you come to me? But notice what it says in verse 15, but Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for this it is fitting for us to fulfill, what? All righteousness. 
Christ is seeking to live his life in such a way in order to live a perfect life to fulfill all of the righteous requirements of God. And then John consented. Notice what the Bible says in verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, the voice from heaven said, notice what the voice of heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Christ lived his, way, his life in such a way in order to meet the approval and the acceptance from the Father. And we as his disciples are to do what now? To live our lives accordingly. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 24 says, And put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We are to live our lives as Jesus lived his life and to become and to follow him, to live like him. And if Jesus thought it was important to live a, a life that was so righteous in order to be approved by God, should we not do the same? And some of you are saying, well, I try, but I fail. And I try, and I fail, and I try, and I fail, and I try, and I fail. Remember, it's not about your righteousness. It's about whose righteousness? About whose righteousness? His, not ours. Not ours. We come insufficient. We come with inabilities. We come with inconsistencies. No matter how hard we try to live the life that Christ has called us to live, you will never measure up. I don't care how much discipline, how much effort, how much time you put into it, how many scriptures you memorize, you'll never live up to the righteous demands of the law. That's why he said that if we sin, all we have to do is confess our sin, for he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we could get there in and of ourselves, independently and apart from God, we wouldn't need Jesus. Every one of us in here stand completely bankrupt. Or we cannot save ourselves. And we can't live righteous, holy lives without giving into the flesh and our carnal nature and our sin. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When I come and I acknowledge my inadequacies, my bankruptcies, my, my inabilities, my, my sin, what's my reward? The kingdom of heaven. I become a kingdom kid when I come and say, I can't do it. I don't measure up. He said, I know you can't, but I'm trying, but I can't. I know. And yet he still smiles and he still communicates and he pronounces his approval on those of us who are his kids. Because like my 20-month-old Canon Knox, Boswell, he'll never always obey his dad. He will always struggle with this independent, selfish, self-centered, egotistical, selfie attitude. And there are times like him, we'll prefer the boom diaper rather than to be cleansed by the Spirit of Christ. But don't you think he still smiles? Let's take a look at a passage. I want to look at something real quick as we close. Let's look at a model here for us in Luke's Gospel, chapter 18. Let's look at it very quickly. Notice Luke 18, the model that I want us to look at. 
I think some of us need to be careful because in the presence of, of, of the Lord today, this may describe you and me if we're not careful. Notice he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple and pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortionists, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Thank you, God, I'm not like Peggy Bennett. Praise God. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. He gives tithes of all he gets. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be, what? Exalted. We need to stop comparing and stop counting, and we need to start considering what God says in this passage. For many of us, I'm convinced as we look in the mirror and try to stand in judgment of our own lives or pronouncing false judgments because we're comparing ourselves with other people. You know, compared to Brad, I'm doing pretty good. God, look at him over here. Switch get percent up front, Brad. Look at him over here. Sinner! Wicked! Look at me. Doing pretty good. Does God smile at me when I do that? Do I meet his approval? Does he pronounce me approved? And will he bless me? Not. And yet Brad, on the other hand, said, hey, pa- hey, hey God, you know, the pastor's over here tooting his own horn, talk about all the, the things that he's doing and all the wonderful work that he's doing and all the messages that he's preaching and all blah, 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 blah. I'm just a poor little wretched sinner over here, undeserving of your grace. Have mercy on me. Forgive me. Because I stand before you completely bankrupt with nothing to bring to the table on my own. Now today we're going to take the Lord's Supper and we're going to share in this communion time. There's one passage I'm going to close as our deacons come. Deacons, would you come and let's prepare to do that. I want to look at a mandate that Jesus gave us as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. He says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty, of concern, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. What pronouncement is God going to make over your life today? As you examine your life and prepare for the Lord's Supper, are you the kind of person that's going to say, look at all I've done, look at all I've done. Thank you, God, I'm not like him or her or him or her or him or her. Look at me. Are we going to be the kind of people who say, Lord, I'm completely bankrupt. I have no righteousness of my own to bring to the equation. I have nothing to merit, to earn, to deserve your salvation. I'm a sinner deserving of hell and damnation. And yet, I ask for your mercy and plead for your grace. Forgive me of my sin. 
I recognize my sufficiency is in you. My dependence is in you. My righteousness is on and in you and only you alone. Because blessed are the humble, for they shall receive mercy. Would you bow with me? Every head bowed and every eye closed for just a moment. While our deacons prepare to distribute the Lord's Supper as it comes by, you just pick your head up and take it if you would and bow back down in the presence of the Lord. Brother Andy's going to come and sing us a song that's going to remind us of this beautiful message of the grace and the mercy of God. And as he sings, as you reflect, as you analyze and examine your life, let's remember that we bring nothing of ourselves to this equation. We have nothing to offer. We're completely bankrupt. And were it not for what Christ did through his sinless life, measuring up to the standards of God, and thus dying for our sin against the Father, can we then even have the privilege of being kingdom kids? If there's anything you've done or failed to do today, that you believe that, that you're not practicing a life that should be practiced, would you confess it? For if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's prepare to examine ourselves so that we can receive the smile and the approval of our Heavenly Father. Deacons. with us and so we want to recognize uh, their achievement uh, in graduating uh, today so we're going to start with Ben Albertson Ben uh, yeah yeah that's okay I won't make it wait uh, Ben is graduating from Goddard Eisenhower High School and plans to attend Washburn University in the fall with a major uh, in history it says Emmanuel has taught me that God works in mysterious ways Plans for the future, I want to major in history and minor in German with plans of studying international law after getting my bachelor's degree. So how about that, huh? <laughs> Next up is Madeline Clark. Madeline is, uh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, Madeline is uh, graduating from Heights High School. Uh, she plans to attend Wichita State University in the fall with a major in international business. I'm sensing a theme here. Uh, she says, Emmanuel has taught me to never forget God's plan for myself 
and to keep him in mind during every decision that I make. Plans for the future to get married, have a family, and enjoy every moment of life. So special thanks to my mom, brother, and uncle Mike. Uh, next up is Caleb Durkee. He's graduating from Durkee Academy. It says, un yeah, go ahead. Can you applaud? Go ahead. Uh, it says, undecided on where to go this fall, but wants to major in business. It says, Emmanuel has taught me the importance of faith in my life. Plans for the future. It says, to grow up. <laughs> uh, next up, we have Becky Niece. <laughs> Becky is... Uh, Graduating from Northeast Magnet High School, she plans to attend Wichita State University in the fall with a major on nursing or teaching. It says, Emmanuel has taught me how to be a model Christian. Plans for the future to decide on which major I want to pursue by next week. <laughs> Shout out to Michael Raypour. And to dr uh, always drive with peanut butter on the roof of your mouth. I don't know what that means. <laughs> And lastly, but not least, Jessica Talbert is graduating from Wichita Metro High School, plans to attend Butler Community College this fall with a major in health science. She says, Emmanuel has taught me through the darkest and most difficult times that God is still there to guide and love me. Uh, plans for the future? I like this answer. Psychiatric therapy. Because, Jess, your brother, I have your brother for five more years. So I think that might be in my future, too. So uh, let, me, uh, let me just pray for them real fast. We're going to have them stand at the front so as you leave this morning after we introduce these decisions that have been made. Uh, you have the opportunity to shake their hand and just let them know you're praying for them. You know, the, the statistics on students who never attend church after they graduate from high school have slowly ticked up to 88%. 88% of students who graduate high school never attend church again after their freshman year of college. And so they need your prayers. Uh, and they, more importantly, they need your influence. Uh, and so just remember that. Uh, as we think about what, what's happening today. Let me, let me pray for them. Yeah. Huh? Thank you. Thank you. Let, let, me, uh, let me pray for them. Heavenly Father, we uh, just come before you this morning uh, just to cover these five that are here today in, in just begging for your protection and your provision in their life. There's a lot that's about to happen with them and, and transitions to, to college and making decisions and all that. And it's so easy for them to lose sight of you in the shuffle of all of that. And so we just pray uh, that you would help them to focus on you, to be dedicated, to be committed to their faith and, and not to stop growing. God, even as they take philosophy classes or science classes in a secular university where a professor says that a belief in God is not logical or that you've been mind uh, that you, you're, you've been controlled in your mind or brainwashed to believe something that's not true. And uh, God, we just pray that uh, you would help them to understand that that's not true. Uh, and that you would help them to be, like I said, committed and dedicated in their faith and to growing in you every day of their life as, as adults. And uh, we just pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.